You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing... Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, sorry about that uh, little... uh, business at the beginning of the show, but uh, that's the breaks. Uh, Lovely morning this morning, big uh, moon, but uh, lots of the summer is uh, hitters because uh, there's uh, lots of people uh, out and about even in the very early hours. I think they probably haven't been to bed yet. Anyway, you're uh, with me at this time and uh, or you're listening to our podcast Um, we're going to be uh, following up some of the uh, Victorian election results, but with an eye to climate and public transport in the northern suburbs. There was an enormous swing in a variety of uh, safe seats in the northern corridor, and we're going to talk to um, John uh, Engelhard, who uh, keeps an eye on these sorts of things, and uh, he's going to have a chat to us about, uh, or he did have a chat with me about... Uh, what this might mean. These swings were quite extraordinary. Uh, It didn't unseat the Labor candidates as a general rule, but uh, the uh, 9% or 11% swing to the Liberals was a very interesting development. Uh, We're going to talk to Nick Frost. uh, Fox, Nick Frog... uh, (laughs) Get your lips in order. Uh, Nick Fox uh, from the uh, because of a Warburton environment win in court uh, last oh I think it was announced on uh, Thursday or Wednesday anyway last last week um, where after a two year struggle in the courts to protect a now endangered uh, species of tree in the Warburton Ranges they have. One, they won. Anyway, Nick's going to talk to us about how that happened and the incredible struggle for for uh, the environment that's been going on all around us. Uh, this is the week that was. Uh, follows, we're going to talk to Catherine Kelly from the Alliance Against Political per- Persecution. Uh, you would have been aware that uh, finally the Prime Minister has actually said, the Australian Prime Minister has actually said something about Julian Assange, uh, apparently had a word with uh, the big master in the US about uh, enough is enough. Anyway, we're going to find out uh, what uh, that might mean and uh, perhaps also following up with uh, what's going on with uh, Richard Boyle, the uh, whistleblower, 
from the tax office and David McBride, the whistleblower for the uh, um, services and atrocious behaviours there. But of course, it's not over for either of those fellows. Uh, And we're going to uh, follow that up with a quick word with uh, Val Nagel about second chance cycles. And you're on 3CR with Annie and uh, we might uh, have a little rest from voices with a little nice song. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle. Go with the fellas, whatever the weather. We got drinks with umbrellas. You got time to wine, keep them down in the cellar. We got time to shine, do that shit at Coachella. From brunches and lunches, lunches and crunches. Living life in abundance, don't really worry about nothing. Then I pull up, hop out, wave at that cop now. Stop sign, ran that, oh that fine, that's not out. And hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, my life is incredible. Miracle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, my life is incredible. Oh, oh, oh. My life is incredible. Miracle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, my life is incredible. That's okay. To be opaque, man, it's okay. To be opaque, man, it's okay. To be opaque, man, it's okay. To be opaque. You got your girl a new handbag. I'm living like I got my land. I got them tin tams and bintangs. Chewies and skip pants. Very vocal as my girl. I'll tell them all my big plans on how we head to Bali smoking Cuban cigars. And we fuck up the party like acoustic guitars. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle.
Shell is incredible. Craft beer is incredible. You're on TCR with Annie and uh, this is Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, you might have heard, before we get on to the uh, program proper, uh, you might have heard that uh, uh, the uh, draconian uh, uh, laws against uh, protest uh, have come to a head in uh, the New South Wales context with uh, the uh, imprisoning of Violet Coco uh, for her uh, role in the recent uh, uh, actions in Sydney, uh, where uh, apparently uh, she, they were able to uh, stop the traffic for a whole 25 minutes uh, and that uh, Violet was uh, on top of a car with a, uh, um, uh, you know, one of those things that you, uh, 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 one of those things you have on ships where, that... Uh, set off a, a flare, that's it, she had a flare, that's what it was, um, and uh, this has been conflated into a uh, dangerous situation, and uh, and this person has now been uh, ch- uh, put in prison for, uh, I think it's eight months, it was uh, 15 months with uh, a release date uh, potential of eight months, uh, this has now been uh, international news and uh, around Australia's um, behaviour of uh, uh, locking people up. Uh, in fact, uh, you can find out more about this on Tuesday breakfast. They're going to uh, do an extended interview around this. Uh, but if you want to be uh, helpful, you can send a letter to Violet in prison, uh, this is uh, this is uh, heating up this whole thing. Uh, I'll put the address for her uh, on my on the podcast page. Um, the address is um, yeah, I've got it here. Oh yeah, that's it. Send a letter. Let her know uh, that uh, she has support. And that it counts. And the address is Deanna Marie Coco, M I N in capitals, and a colon, 652500, Silverwater Correctional Centre, Locked Bag 130, Silverwater, New South Wales, Australia, 2128. But I'll put it up on the, uh, the uh, podcast. You can send her a letter. Also, there is a. Uh, a uh, fundraiser is going on to pay for her uh, ev- um, her defence uh, continuing legal expenses, uh, and I'll put that up as well. So uh, the issue of defending the climate uh, and being uh, and uh, being squashed by uh, laws that are contributing to climate destruction. This is the battleground and uh, we're all involved in this. Uh, as I said, uh, there's going to be uh, obvious uh, follow-ups on this issue and uh, Tuesday Breakfast in particular are, are, are on to it if you want to hear more about it. Join us for the 2022 edition of The Change, Definitions of Freedom, Interactive Theatre, 
7 to 9pm on the 16th of December at the Honda Showrooms, Hoddle Street. We're also having an exhibition and preview from 5pm Thursday 24th of November at the store, Abbotsford Convent. Find out more on Facebook at The Change Definitions of Freedom, The Change is presented by United Struggle Project, a 3CR supporter. The uh, Northern Transport Corridor and the 2022 Victorian elections uh, had a interesting uh, confluence to, uh, over... There was a massive swing in a variety of seats along that corridor uh, towards the uh, Liberals. And uh, I got to chat with uh, John... Engelhart, who about these um, results, uh, he's been keeping an eye on these areas for quite a long time. He is a um, uh, has been fighting for a very long time for uh, some positive outcomes in terms of uh, the poorest situation when it comes to public transport in the northern areas uh, of this city. And uh, it's he argues that uh, the turnaround in the election for uh, those uh, particular voting patterns uh, is directly related. And it's also directly related to uh, the issue of climate because, of course, public transport is a solution to uh, climate uh, ch- uh, change effects. So here's what uh, John had to say. Thank you very much for talking to me. Um, I'm interested in your understanding of uh, some of the results in the Victorian election that's just uh, happened, uh, especially in relation to the northern suburbs and how it relates to climate change and uh, or might relate to climate change and public transport uh, in that area. You've done an analysis, haven't you? Uh, yes, I looked at the... Um in the northern suburbs, uh, which included Pascavale, Broad Meadows, Greenvale, Calcello, Thomastown, Yanmin. These are all very safe labour seats, um, but there were substantial swings away from the Labour Party in these seats. Um, there was a swing to the Liberal Party, but also um, the Victorian Socialists increased their vote, um, but there was also votes going to Family First and Animal Justice. The Greens slightly increased in some seats and slightly went back, a negative swing in some seats. So um, the Greens were very variable, and I think that was uh, as a result of concentrating their resources more on the inner city seats, which they had a possibility of achieving greater success. Um, So one of the issues in the northern suburbs is around transport, um, the northern transport corridor. So that includes the Craigieburn line and the Upfield line. Um, And the growth areas north of Craigieburn, so Calcello, Mickleham, Wallen, Donnybrook, 
all those areas are experiencing um, population growth and they are projected to be approaching 100,000 people in by 2031. So one of the issues is um, the Craigieburn line is approaching capacity. Um, so we, there really needs to be an extension to the upfield line to Craigieburn and then extension up to Wallen. Um, well, uh, it, to meet the transport needs of people in these northern suburbs. It, 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 let's go back to the figures. Uh, when you say there, there was a swing uh, in places like Broad, Broad Meadows, there was a 9% swing to the Liberals. Um, this is highly significant. There were, it goes on in other areas, even down to places like Thomastown, where you've got uh, uh, Labor MPs, veteran Labor MPs, Bronwyn Halfpenny, who is very popular, in fact, um, mm-hmm. experiencing a swing of 10.5%. So it's really not um, drawing too long a bow to think that there was some correlation with this type of vote with this uh, need to change the feeling that the people in the northern suburbs are are getting a raw deal because you you talk about a thing called, I love this, a high vampire index. Talk about that. Uh, Yes, this is an academic about a decade ago um, came up with examining uh, the issues in the outer suburban areas of um, a vulnerable, the vampire index is the vulnerability assessment for mortgage, petroleum, inflation risks and expenditure. So people in the outer suburbs have usually high mortgages. Um, they're reliant on uh, cars for transport. So often they have two or three vehicles in a household. And of course, uh, they have... Um, uh, they're at risk of inflation, and as we're seeing with our RBA rates going up, um, their home loans are increasing. Um, when we've got an international crisis with pushing up petrol prices, that means more costs for running their vehicles. So these people are very sensitive to cost of living pressures um, up there, but the public transport is so terrible that even for a small proportion of those people who might use public transport, it's really, um, it's yeah, it's not being provided at all. Yeah, they're captured, but they're captured by the um, uh, this spiralling uh, uh, household debt and um, their reliance on fossil fuel in order to be able to go to anywhere and and to work. Exactly. And it's made worse by urban planning. So there's only limited access roads into some of these suburbs. So these um, in and out get very congested during peak times. Um, and simple things like there might, might be a V-line station, but the only access is via a road, which is a circuitous route, when there should be pathway through to the suburban development so people can go directly to the station there should be cycling routes in the suburbs at the time of building um, I know that uh, going back a, a couple of decades 
Roxburgh Park was actually designed at least somewhat with cycling in mind. So there was there's a whole lot of um, cycling routes through the Roxburgh Park suburb um, that was put in at the time of the design of that suburb. So the bicycle network were invited to come along and contribute to the urban planning of that area. And I don't think that has seemed to happen happened with the new residential developments happening further north, and that's highly problematic. You know, when um, people who may want to just take their kids to childcare, they have to hop in the car to make a 45-minute journey, when if they had a, a, a cargo bike, they could take their kids to childcare, go to the shops, come home. But, um, yeah, it's been mostly designed around cars, which, you know, a huge cost of living pressure. Yeah, the um, it, and there is a, a vote going on here. I mean, there is quite clearly something happening in the northern suburbs that are telling uh, the uh, government that uh, something needs to be done. And you you point out that there was actually a report, the Summerton Link report, which they spent five million dollars on in two thousand and eighteen, but they have refused to release. What What's your feeling on that? Uh, well, um, I came across that in the budget papers in 2018. Um, so a, uh, another person put in a freedom of information request and it was refused, saying that the public didn't need to understand. It was a technical report. But my understanding is the taxpayer paid for this report it should be made public, even though it could be only a technical report. My understanding of it is it provides what work needs to be done for extending the upfield line through to Craigieburn and costing for that work. Um, yeah. So, so, so do you do you think you think that the what the government's done is? Uh, thinking about how much money it's got and thinking that it doesn't need to uh, deal with this problem at, at the moment because it's not going to affect their ability to get back into government? Well, at the moment, it hasn't affected their ability to get back into government. Um, as we saw, the eastern suburbs um, with the suburban rail loop project um, increased the, the votes for Labor. But Labor has ignored um, actually increasing the public transport infrastructure in the northern suburbs, and they went backwards. And sometimes, you know, by 10, 11%... That's a lot. Um, ...of the vote. That's an enormous amount. It is. And I think it's basically because they've been ignoring the infrastructure needs of the northern suburbs. Um, and I know that there's also been ignoring the needs of the western suburbs as well in transport infrastructure, but I'm not across all the details for the western suburbs. Yeah, yeah, but there's other issues over there as well, like um, dumping and uh, chemical fires and stuff like that. But, yeah, um, but this is a very interesting issue, isn't it? There was one positive that came out of this. Uh, I mean, well, actually, you could say that... Um, uh, this uh, return, this reverse in their um, and very large swing towards uh, their 
uh, to the Liberals is actually a wake-up call for them and it might hearken uh, for a better outcome for uh, the northern suburbs in these two areas. Uh, but also there was one positive in the sense that there were people who were elected who have signed the Climate Emergency Declaration. Could you tell my listeners about what that is? Um, yes, so the Climate Emergency Declaration is a statement which asks uh, candidates to say they would support actions um, for a climate emergency in Victoria. Um, so we, uh, I am convener of Climate Action, Mary Beck. I went around asking candidates to sign this declaration um, during the campaign and quite a number signed in the three suburbs with three electorates which I am most concerned about. That's Brunswick, Pascavale and Broadmeadows. So the... Um, uh, basically, the three elected members for Marybeck area, uh, so the board Meadows electorate, uh, Kathleen Matthews Ward, the, the new Labor MP, has signed the Climate Emergency Declaration. Uh, Anthony Sienfloney, the new ALP member for Pascoval, has signed the Climate Emergency Declaration. And the Greens MP for Brunswick, Tim Reid, has also signed the Climate Emergency Declaration. So previously, um, only two of our MPs had signed on to the Climate Emergency at the 2018 electorate. So we've actually got all three local MPs now on board that we have a climate emergency and we need to start putting in place policies and programs to address the climate emergency. So, what do you? So th that's been a positive out outcome. Yeah, yeah, that is a positive outcome. What do you think is going to happen in the northern suburbs now that I mean there is a little bit of traction? It's quite clear that uh, people are, are are sick and tired of uh, this uh, congestion. Uh, the it, it's quite difficult for them to actually uh, live uh, the aspirations that they have, and that they need practical change. So, what do you see for the future? Um, well, I think that um, the people in the northern suburbs, I think, are mostly progressive. They'd like to see a Labor government addressing the equity issues in the northern suburbs. And providing good public transport is part of addressing the equity issues. It's also part of addressing um, climate action as well in reducing emissions because the more people that use public transport uh, means the roads are less congested, congested, less transport emissions. So, you know, it's the direction that we need to move in, that more people need to be encouraged to use public transport. And um, also in local communities, more cycling and walking. Um, so that's essential for addressing transport emissions. At the moment, the government is only focused on electric vehicle, trans electric vehicle transition, and although that's important, um, there also needs to be um, better public transport and cycling infrastructure put in place as well 
so that people will move to those forms of transport. Not everyone, just there needs to be that availability of that. Well, well, it, it strikes me that um, with all these uh, large developments which are answering certain um, calls for uh, affordable housing, then that's uh, a moot point. But since there are these uh, big developments that are going on, has there, is there any uh, push towards the developers themselves or an um, all overall government plan that with, with these developments that there has to be these kind of elements involved in the planning? Uh, um, well, I'm not across um, how much the government regulates the um, residential development but they should be actually putting in place, you know, the the elements of urban planning that are necessary, but the government itself should be putting in place the infrastructure for the suburbs. Um, So it's... The government needs to do much more in this area for... You know, when new residential developments are happening um, and being developed. It's not only the developer's issue, it's also the government issue of providing the infrastructure. Um, and we're seeing that also with um, the a lot of the suburbs closer in. There's a lot of infill development happening. Um, so there's pressures on parking and public transport. Um, in Faulkner, in areas of Broadmeadows as well, um, and in Coburg. So we're getting ha- houses being subdivided and townhouses being put up. Um, so there's all these demo- demographic pressures happening, and at the moment the, the state government doesn't seem to be responding adequately to these pressures. Um, so if you just look at... Um, the cycling budget, hardly any money is going into increasing the cycling infrastructure budget. Now, this applies mainly in the inner urban and the middle suburbs at the moment. Um, but if I look at New South Wales and they've got $950 million for their cycling budget over five years. In Victoria, we spend about 23, 25 million a year. So we're spending, you know, 20% of what New South Wales is spending. Mm. Um, and you know, we need to put in place the infrastructure so people will be encouraged to, you know, change to public using public transport and cycling. Yeah, well, we do because uh, it's our, all our futures at stake. Thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to communities since 1976.
Back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. That was a delicious piece from uh, Tra La La Blimp Ice Cream Truck, if you hadn't worked it out. Uh, on the line, we've got Nick F- Fox from Warburton. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Annie. Yourself? <clears throat> I'm good. <laughs> I'm lying. I'm coughing. <laughs> oh, well, I might be too. I'm recovering from COVID at the moment, so I do have this lingering cough, but hopefully it'll be subdued during this interview. Yeah, yeah. Well, you had great news last week, didn't you? Oh, we did, we did. So um, we have been working out in Warburton. I'm, I'm part of Warburton Environment, a wonderful community group. Uh, we had uh, the orders of a Supreme Court case handed down, our final judgment, on Wednesday um, after two and a half years of fighting in the Supreme Court against the state uh, logging company, Vic Forests. We um, have got orders that basically are in our favour, saying that uh, the Vic Forests have has been logging illegally in areas of the Central Highlands, which is uh, where the where endangered tree species called the tree jibung, it's a long-lived understory tree, has now uh, protection. So we set we have set a precedent for endangered flora species in the state of Victoria against being illegally logged. Oh, congratulations! Mm. Yeah, it's been a long fight. Oh, 
it has been a long fight, and look, it's um, it, it's a roller coaster. Uh, you, we've had ten, four, something like forty different hearings. Uh, in the beginning, we were fighting for each tree debung in each area that was being logged. Um, and it, it really, it started back in the beginning of 2020 when uh, we had the massive bushfires still burning in January and then we heard that Vic Forest was going to log just out from Warburton and, uh, you know, there was a group of us just said, you know, we know that logging, um, it destroy, destroying the older wetter forest leaves a much more flammable regrowth, which significantly increases our bushfire risk. And we went, no, we don't want this logging happening so close to our homes and community. And that started it off. And then um, when we realised in an area that they were going to log just out from Warburton, um, there was this, uh, at that point, it was vulnerable, um, tree G-bong, and Mm. one had already been destroyed. We went, how, you know, we need... We will try and stop them however we can, and that was um, luckily on the back of another court case, the Possums court case, which was a very big one. Um, Justice Mortimer, uh, in that case, uh, said that Vic Forests had destroyed tree G-bungs and had not abided by the precautionary principle, which is a, a you know a legal term. Um, and on the back of that, we went right let's file this court case, and we did in June 2020. And, yes, the decision, uh, the judgment was handed down at the end of October, but the final orders came on Wednesday, and we are very, very, very happy. Yeah, yeah. It started, you said to me, that it started off with a six-week community campaign, a picket, basically. Yeah. Well, yes. So um, we knew these trees were in there. We also knew that Big Forest had not detected them in this area that was to be logged. And that we, because one had already been destroyed, it had been rolled over by a, uh, by the logging contractor just with it uh, parking one of the machines. I mean, these are long-lived understory trees. So a tree that is uh, considered mature is just 10 centimetres in, in, in breadth um, at, 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 uh, at breast height. And so a mature tree that's, you know, 19, 20, 21 centimetres could be like 400 years old. Um, and, and so one of these had been destroyed and we went, right, um, how can we protect the rest of these trees until we can in somehow you know, permanently protect them. And so we decided to to do what a community does when they are protecting their loved ones and their homes. And um, we, we decided to start um, campaigning, and we did. And we campaigned the government um, at the same time we were uh, stopping logging out there. Um, and we ended up, though trees that were there, the tree jibong that are in that area, apart from that one that had already been destroyed, are all protected. Now, um, tell me, you said that Vic Forest hadn't detected the trees there, so, no. uh, uh, but your environmental group had. So your members yes. have been on the ground doing mm-hmm. the work that uh, we expect the government to do. 
Yes, this is right. And so this, throughout this court case, and it, it's been, uh, you know, we we put in um, evidence that was uncontested um, that there are that the government agency is meant to detect these trees. The only way you can protect an endangered species is to know it's there. Um, and so what we were doing was going into these areas to see if we could find these, well, a species that needed to be protected. And it so happened that the tree G bone was in there. And, yes, so our orders now... Um, which are legally binding, um, actually state that any area where a tree jibong in the Central Highlands, it's endemic to the Central Highlands, um, could possibly found, be found, so five kilometres from uh, any other sighting, needs to have a survey done throughout the whole coop with a coop is an area that's to be logged. It can be anywhere between 20 and 30 hectares usually, um, has to have a 30-metre transect survey done in it looking for this species, which is law. It should have been being done anyway. Um, now it is mandated and it will be um, <clears throat> necessary for the government agency to make sure that they do that before. And then, of course, when they do find them, each mature tree debunk now has a minimum buffer of 50 metres around it that needs to be put in place so it's, it, that, that buffer around it will protect it. We know historically that these trees, when they're left just standing alone, will, be, will, will die um, from wind throw, exposure, uh, the post-log, Ferns are often something that'll kill them. So um, that means that every tree uh, has now protected unless it's uh, not practicable to do so. And the judge has made it very clear that in most cases it, it is practicable. Right, okay. So uh, it's been a long road. How did, you, yes. your, how did, your, how did your group maintain focus? Because it's very hard. Uh, Oh, yeah, look, a community group. We're all volunteers. We all have other jobs. We all have, you know, lives and families. It's a great question, Annie. We, we, we're just so passionate about um, stopping native forest logging um, and we knew that we needed to continue to, to hold the line to... Um, to continue to do to do well, I think we think of the future. We think of future generations. We think of um, of what we are doing and what we're protecting. And to be honest, Annie, there's other many other groups all together coming together, sharing experiences, supporting each other. And we made sure that we did that. We made sure we came, we come together with other groups and we also come together as a group and support each other when we need it. Uh, it it's been a long road and thousands and thousands and thousands of volunteer hours. Oh, it's a great victory. It's a great victory. Yes. Uh, yes. The, the, uh, the other thing is that how are you going to keep them? Uh, you'll have to be vigilant, won't you? Oh, we definitely will be vigilant. I mean, we've come this far. We will. We're out there. We're still detecting the tree jibungs. We're making sure in areas that are being proposed to be logged that um, 
that we are aware of where these where this species is and that they are being protected um it, it's it is an over what we need is a complete end to native forest logging it's been proven now um there are a couple of other cases that also had judgments handed down in November um, uh, for uh, for fauna species. The government agency is not fulfilling their um, obligations. They're, they're Ill- illegally logging. It's it needs to be wound up now for so many reasons. So yes, vigilance will definitely 2023. We will be holding them to account. Thank you very much for <laughs> alerting us to this great victory, Nick. Yes, uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on, Annie, and um, just sharing that um, you know the work still needs to be done, and would love support wherever we can um, from people that this the, the, this wood chipping industry, because we do know most of it goes to wood chips, needs to end, and uh, we'll be fighting for that 2023. I want to give a shout out to 3CR. Two groups of 3CR here. We've got Wednesday Breaking, we've got Radioactive, and like for the heart and soul of documenting stuff that goes on in this city of five million people, bloody magnificent institution as well as revolutionary radio. Left my car on a pitch black night. see left and I couldn't see right Worked my way through the bush and the scrub No damn car and no damn pub I'm coming for you and I won't look back I woke up dry, had a thirsty mouth Started out on that road again I can't say why And I can't say when I'm coming for you I'm coming for you and I won't look back I'm coming for you and I won't look
Solidarity Bricky Team listener when who'd want to be a giant resource company raking in trillions in obscene windfalls, super duper profits with all the threats and barriers they have to confront? Like a government threatening them with a windfall, super duper obscene profits tax or a price cap on the super duper obscene prices raking in those super duper obscene windfall profits? Who? Yet they battle on. Such is their concern to ensure the people they so care about can enjoy the energy they produce, altruistic to a fault. See, they point out a super-duper windfall obscene profits tax would dissuade them from investing, from exploring and extracting more gas and create a shortage, and who wants that? Well, other than long-haired commie greedies who carry on that we should stop extracting gas and fossils altogether just because of a, a bit of unseasonal weather harbinging a few disasters, and, and they point out a price cap would dissuade them from investing, from exploring and extracting more gas and creating a shortage, and who wants that? Other than, well, we know who. The anti-caring business class socialists are proposing an 11 to $13 gas price cap, with those who know warning this would reduce the super-duper windfall obscene profits to mere super-windfall obscene profits, a blatant attack on a great industry. And the even more anti-caring business evil unions reckon an 8 to $10 cap would still allow super-obscene profits, but... To prove the government and evil unions have no idea what they're talking about, the ever-sensible Woodside with Pollution Supremo, Mego Neil Before Profits, described a tax or price cap as a black mark on government which would only exacerbate the issue. Poor Meg. The only answer is to produce more gas, she pointed out. One of the things that is important to us is fiscal stability. Meg stressed the obvious. A fiscal stability, Meg. Of course, we, we must have fiscally stable, super-duper obscene windfall profits. Uh, so the black mark government can't tax you and can't price cap you either. Exactly. Either would be a disaster for the whole country, which is all we care about. Uh, so what can it do? It can. No, no, it must. Stop the anti-true blue Aussie, long-haired, greeny, commie, wouldn't work in an iron environmentalist getting in our way, getting in the way of progress. And coal, which like gas has made such a wonderful, such an invaluable contribution to our wild weather patterns, denied the soaring super-duper obscene profits they are charging have anything, or prices, I'm sorry, they are charging, have anything to do with our soaring power bills. The Minerals Council promising a massive multi-trillion campaign if the government dares place a price cap or obscene profits tax on them. An unnecessary explanation, really, because only the most rabid, long-haired, commie, greenie would imagine there was some connection between coal giants charging super-duper obscene prices and our power bills, which is probably why they thought there was no need to explain the non-connection, knowing we'd take their word for it. 
One proud resource behemoth saying toss us the profits did provide an explanation after dolphins were found belly up dead in a 25,000 litre oil leak saying toss us managed to spill 75k off the Pilbara coast. After a, a bit of denial, the company came up with its explanation after goody-goody interferers produced photos of dead dolphins in the oil slick. And the explanation? Santosas's leak had absolutely nothing to do with the dead dolphins floating in its oil slick. Such a logical explanation should have been the end of it, but true to form for these interfering people, an academic mammal researcher raved that it would take a brave or foolish person to say how the dolphin seen near the oil died without undertaking a post-mortem. The fact the dolphins were seen dead and floating suggests a sudden death. Look, as far as the week that wasn't concerned, we trust Santos as the promise to tell us the truth. Like it assures us its floating gas plant opposed by Tiwi Islanders off northern Trubluwazi poses no threat whatever from something like or say, a 25,000-litre oil spill. And after the full bench of the federal court ruled in favour of the Tiwi Islanders last week, both the government and the company said they would delay production and create further gas shortages. So we presume, with government support, they'll consult the Tiwi Islanders and tell them the project is going ahead whether they like it or not. After all, it's their law. The gas field is called Barossa, like the wine region. Maybe we could speculate because Santosas is certainly whining over those bloody interfering Tiwi Islanders. Although they're concerned that it could lead to a gas shortage. Maybe, maybe, but then they say the gas will be for export to South Korea and Japan to pollute those countries as well. If we didn't have such faith in the reliability of the industry, we might have thought, obviously falsely, that there could be some inconsistency. And brickbats to the Queensland, <laughs> Most Gracious Majesty's land government for its economic ignorance. Boasting, boasting, mind you, it is raking in trillions because it still owns coal-fired power stations and generators selfishly depriving its customers of the great benefits of privatisation that we're all lucky enough to enjoy. Customers cruelly seduced by little incidentals like cheaper bills and better service. This whole threatening picture summed up by a Trublowasi Capitalist Review deep-thinking commentator, deep-thinking people who know all about the delicate flower that is the economy, deep-thinking commentator under the headline, Why a Gas Price Cap Will Be a Disaster. Well, our proud resource industry has told us that. It's warned us. As an aside, two weeks ago we commented on a very sensible letter to the editor from an East Brighton deep mind suggesting Her Majesty's Theatre should be changed to His Majesty's most important issue. Well, why don't we start a week that was campaign for Queensland to become Kingsland? It's the least we could do for King Big Ears. Sadly, there's an even bigger threat to the environment and attempts to increase renewable energy. Wages bloody wages. It's always the way, isn't it? Caring employers have warned that multi-employer agreements which could force them to pay wages would drive up the costs of renewable energy projects and put power prices up even higher or even thwart investment altogether. 
but on a positive side to uh, confirm caring employers' sincerity when they declare they want wages to increase, some sceptics actually doubt their sincerity based on nothing more reliable than the history of capitalism. To confirm, caring employers have attacked recent wage increases as grossly inadequate. One said a 15% increase was insulting and called for substantial increases after aged care workers were awarded a 15% increase. The evil unions had asked for a 25% increase. Aged care caring employers said the 15% was insulting and called for the 25%. See, they care. And childcare caring employers also called for substantial wage increases for their workers. And again, only the most cynical would suggest their conversion on the road to the fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like it commission, has anything to do with the small fact that the government will pick up their wages bill, leaving them to pocket the profits. Another minor fact that other caring employers aren't nearly as profligate and indeed argue any increase would destroy the economy should not be used to suggest these caring employers are not sincere when they say they'd just love to see wages rise but not just yet, the time is not right. The win-win advantage of contracting work out and sacking or, sorry, sorry, sadly having to let go your workforce were highlighted on our telly screens as we saw the airline, which used to be our airline's passengers' luggage, being thrown around by labour hire casual workers. Win-win for the airline, which used to be's bottom line and the caring labour hire employer. Perhaps not quite so win-win for the passengers and the sadly let go workforce. Former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander has joined the chorus line proffering advice and his renowned wisdom to the poor, beleaguered, caring business class party. It must boldly articulate its timeless values, Alexander advised. And here were we thinking that was the problem. Former Big Supremo Scuttle Ben Moore Lashsud, a.k.a. Scummo, said there were two problems as he defended himself over taking over heaps of portfolios from his clearly incompetent colleagues. One, he would have admitted he had signed himself in as Minister for Just Everything if the media had just asked him. Right, there, so it's the media's fault. We assume they didn't ask him, mainly because they didn't think there was a need to. And two... The censure motion was a retrospective political attack for blatant political purposes. It's the most blatant retrospective political attack since we spent millions on a royal commission to stitch up little Billy Shorten Ambition and Julia Gallinghard and the evil unions. Hard as it is to believe, a survey showed he became the most unpopular big supremo since these surveys began. And it's not like there's not plenty of worthy competition. Most unpopular over little matters like truth and integrity. How would people have got that impression? Oh, and addressing the economy, little matters like inflation and interest rates, the caring business class big economics shadow guru Angus Tailings warned it was critical we solve the problems. It really is. It really is. He's taken lessons from former big supremo little Johnny Howard. Anyway, it really is. It's been critical for months we get a solution. Months? Wonder why Angus didn't say years. That new Indonesia and other people's business law banning sex outside marriage. 
God, if that applied in True Blue Aussie, there'd be about five people not in jail. And the cells would be so crowded, who knows what they'd be getting up to, so to speak. On the positive side, yet another excuse to build more and more prisons run by the private sector. Although, uh, who'd be guarding them? Because it's almost certain the screws, no pun intended, and the, sorry, forces of law and order would be in there with everyone else. Finally, those with hex debts are complaining that with high inflation, their debts are increasingly increasing as the government insists they must rise by the CPI inflation rate. So, we ask big supremo Anthony Albinguzi, that means their incomes, the price of labour, will also rise by the inflation rate? As the Reserve Bank Governor has so wisely made clear, that would be an economic disaster, creating a wage price spiral. True Blue Aussie workers, whom I am here to support, understand that. So, we're just left with a price spiral. Good morning. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we've got Catherine Kelly on the line. G'day Catherine, how are you? Good morning, Annie. Annie, I'm well, thank you. And you? I'm good. Uh, it's a very fine day outside, and the moon was uh, full and uh, shining down when I got here. Um, the so you know that's always a nice start to the day. Alliance Against Political Prosecution uh, Persecution. You you have been uh, a solid advocates for whistleblowers, and um, I just wanted to first start with uh, Julian Assange. And the uh, first time we've had a Prime Minister in Australia actually stand up for him. Yes, uh, he responded, Albanese he responded to a question by Monique Ryan in the Parliament uh, and took the opportunity to again sort of say how we've got to uh, bring an end to this, uh, it need not go on any longer which is very interesting. Um, and apparently the British High Commissioner was in the Visitors' Gallery at the time, along with the UK Minister for the Indo-Pacific, Anne-Marie Trevelyan. So I'm not sure whether that was sort of staged or just a happy coincidence. Um, but I would think, I mean, people, uh, parliamentarians just can't ask questions whenever they want to, so there has to be some permission given to ask you a question. So I think maybe that was maybe that's a signal that um, you know Albanese is giving them a more clearer message that uh, he'd like this episode with Assange to be finalised and be finished. And I hope so. Yeah. There's an interesting um, further point with the UK extradition treaty. Now the Article Four states, and I quote: "Extradition shall not be granted if the offence for which extradition is requested." is a political offence. And we know this is a political offence, uh, or not an offence. I mean, he hasn't commi- committed any offence, but a political prosecution or request for expedition. Jennifer Robinson outlined that very clearly in her National Press Club address. And also Nils Melzer, the former uh, UN Rapporteur for Torture, Special Rapporteur on Torture, has outlined very clearly in his book 
that this is political. So I hope that that will be, um, you know, that if that's pointed out to the UK government, and they should know that already, that they have a reason to stop this prosecution. Yeah, that, that we might see a, a reversal of this outrageous attack on Julian Assange. Yes, it's, it's, it is criminal. I mean, he has suffered for so long, 12 years now since he was first arrested, I, I believe, um, and three years in virtually solid solitary confinement in Belmarsh Prison. Now, why do you do that to somebody if they just sort of skip bail and they've already passed the, you know, the sentence that the, he might have had for skipping bail? He's already done that sort of many times over, I think. Uh, it's it's certainly political. There's no question about that. So uh, he should be released and those charges in the US may even like the UK to stop the extradition request and then they can sort of reconsider what they do from there. But um, if he was, uh, the extradition was stopped and he could stay in the UK, it might be safer for him there than coming here. Uh, although, Yeah, well, it's a bit like the fox in the hen house, really, or the fox deciding to... Uh, uh, um, adjudicate on its own behaviour, but uh, and that moves us on to the issues that are surrounding uh, uh, Richard Boyle and David McBride. Both of these men have actually uh, shone a light on um, very, uh, ter- you know, quite terrible behaviours uh, uh, in parts of our established. Um, System, one the ATO, the uh, tax office, and uh, the other uh, the armed forces. Neither yeah. men were uh, radicals in the sense that they uh, are outside of the system. They are actually proponents of the system. They just expect the system to actually work, right? Yes. Well, Richard Boyle uh, was straightforward. I mean, he thought that the Practices of the ATO were way too serious and harsh, garnishing people's bank accounts, um, sometimes without their knowledge, I understand. And he went through all the right processes of making complaints and uh, they didn't do anything until, you know, he spoke out publicly and then he was sacked and then they changed the practices. So um, it's uh, clear that he, this is an unjust prosecution of him. He is a, a heroic whistleblower. And, uh, but an interesting thing was that they also tried to use suppression orders in his case, which fortunately the judge knocked back. And uh, he's done his PID, uh, Public Interest Disclosure Defence, which was apparently very strong. And I think the sort of prosecution wound themselves up in not... Um, he... Uh, they admitted that he hadn't disclosed things because he'd given them to a lawyer about people's personal information. He'd given it to the lawyer not to be opened and to unless asked to, and he wasn't. And so, so they admitted that he hadn't disclosed things, but then he's being charged or prosecuted for disclosure. So it's a bit weird, but uh, we, there's, we're waiting for the judge's uh, decision on that, his public interest disclosure defence and hopefully it might be out before Christmas. But it looks like um, 
that there'll be an appeal whichever way it goes. If you dismiss the charges, the prosecution, you know, the Commonwealth Department Director of Public Prosecutions will possibly appeal, I understand, but who knows. Um, we've written to Dreyfus a number of times on the, you know, all these cases, but he's sort of standing firm on not dropping their cases for um, McBride and, and Boyle, which is hard to understand, really. Well, um, McBride uh, was also vindicated in the Brereton report. So, yeah, both of these people have been vindicated. Uh, I went to a um, an event where uh, Bernard Caleri uh, was talking uh, mm-hmm. and uh, he was saying that um, and uh, the uh, person who was talking to him is all, was also a legal man. Uh, they were talking about uh, the, uh, the Richard Boyle case in particular uh, in relation to the same notion that uh, the charges should be dropped, uh, but that uh, the AT, uh, they were talking about the difficulty in relation to the Australian Tax Office's uh, autonomy uh, from government interference. Isn't that interesting? Mm. That's why it becomes more difficult for the Attorney General. Uh, it's a different. A difficulty than the one that was presented by Bernard Caleri. Yes, but he still does have the power, the same power that he used to drop the charges for Caleri. He could use that, that power to drop the charges for McBride and Boyle. It's quite clear that he has that power. So, but anyway, um, it, that was what they were they were saying that um, it's a more of a, a sticky sticky plot. Hmm. Yes. Um, yes, I'm not from a legal sure. from a legal point of view, I I just uh, I, I you know what they like they've they've yeah. they've got a they're a, a world unto themselves. It's almost mm-hmm. like you have to have the chairs in order, or it won't work as a room. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting for the last McBride hearing because the chairs were certainly in order. This was um, his McBride's public interest event. Um, there were about a third of the room was roped off for the public, and then there were two thirds which were roped off. I think for lawyers or journalists or whatever that had hardly, you know, one or two people sitting in there. So we were all squashed up together, <laughs> and, there and there was this completely empty, or virtually completely empty area nearby that uh, you know we couldn't sit in, and it was just ridiculous. But. There's interesting things with McBride's child, too. I mean, national security is such a problem here, as it was with um, Bernard Caleri and Witness K. They can just say national security and close the court. And um, in his his public interest disclosures of defence, the prosecution said that there were concerns foreign partners' concerns that they would have to seek to remove evidence. Oh, goodness. From the court. And this is outrageous. Um, so we and we can only presume that this foreign concern, partner's concerns is the US's concerns. Now, we really need to unpack this idea of national security and see what it is. Is this just that, you know, we're going to criticise the the war in general or um, 
I can't see that there's many... Uh, are we talking about the Army's tactics, the Australian Army's tactics, or what? There's not that many things that... Well, we've just, done, we've just done full circle. It's probably a Julian Assange, collateral damage... Um, all those types of things that are related to what armies do, which they don't want anybody to know. That's right. I mean, they very much are related. These are both people who've uh, courageously disclosed uh, war crimes, uh, possible war crimes, obvious war crimes in the case of uh, um, Julian Assange. Um, And we're not allowed to talk about it, apparently. So I think we should be really concerned about this. And it goes further. Um, I was reading um, Clinton Fernandez's book. Have you heard of that one? It's called Sub-Imperial Power. Yes. And he talks about the Joint Committee on Security and Intelligence, the Joint Parliamentary Committee. Now, people talk about this as a powerful committee overseeing the intelligence agencies. But actually, it has very little power to oversee the intelligence agencies. It can only look at their finance and administration. It's not allowed to review the intelligence gathering or assessment priorities or review particular operations that have been done or are going to be done by the intelligence agencies or the sources of information and other operation assistance methods available to the agencies. So basically... They are not overseeing what the intelligence agencies are doing either. So, um, you know, who is? Basically, <laughs> the whistleblowers. Yeah, you know, basically, the whistleblowers, the agencies themselves, and, and it seems like the US. Um, <laughs> the US. <laughs> We're outsourcing it, you reckon? Yes. Well, this is, uh, I mean, Clinton has uh, very good knowledge on these matters. He's been with the uh, Australian Defence Force Academy for some years and uh, been very closely involved in these matters. Um, so I think he knows what he was talking about. But the US Congress has much greater powers to oversee their intelligence agents and they have much less secrecy than we do here. Mm. But it's just because, I mean, there's a whole, you know, book, probably books have been written, but why we're so subservient to the US, and this is obviously very dangerous in many areas, particularly now with our relations with China. But it's interesting how it's feeding into virtually, you know, a lot of sectors in our society. Um, I went to the... Independent Peaceful Australia Network Conference recently and uh, we were given a presentation uh, about the uh, French company Thales, I think. Oh, um, right, yes. Which, yeah, and how that was um, information about their contract was kept from from the public. And it was just information that that, that, that contract hadn't been uh, valued for money. <laughs> See, I told you, they don't want anybody to know <laughs> about their incompetence. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, by the by, uh, we'll have to leave it there. Obviously, the uh, the court cases related to and the struggle to stop the court cases going ahead for Richard Boyle and David McBride uh, continue. Can I, yes, can I just um, mention a couple of other? Um charge law cases that the AAPP has 
decided to, uh, political prosecution. I don't know whether you've heard of the Australian pilot Daniel Duggan. No, tell us. He's being... Um, the US are requested extradition for him too. He's, uh, he lives somewhere near Orange. Um, he's, I think, a retired pilot from the US Marines. He was American, but mm. he's been living in Australia for some time. He has spent time in China. The US wants to extradite him, but he doesn't know the charges, and nobody else does at this stage. <gasps> oh my God! Yeah. That's that's a Christmas present, isn't it? Yes. If you get my emails, there's a, a link there to the, the Guardian article about him. Yes, it, yes. It's, um, it's we're going to be asking um, Dreyfus about that one too. And there's also the case of uh, the climate activist Violet Coco. Yeah, of course. Sydney um, sentenced to 15 months, refused bail. Uh, she's going to court back in um, on the 15th or 16th of December. Hopefully she will get bail. I mean, these laws are outrageous, so consider that as a political case as well. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely it is. They'll have to create all... a new wing. Yes, when they want to put all the climate activists in jail. Yes, so they're extremely serious as well, I think. I think you're right. Uh, Thank you very much for talking to us this morning, Catherine. Thank you. Okay. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Yes, you are, and you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And uh, in the studio, I thought I was going to ring you, Val, but it's <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, I thought it was an invitation to come in and enjoy this wonderful studio from the other side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you've come in um, to tell us about uh, the, this great uh, initiative, Second Chance Cycles. Tell us all about it. Oh, um, look, it's... Um, it's been going for about 12 or 13 years now, um, I think about 12. It originally, uh, how best to describe it, it's a virtually a sort of, um, we work with um, blokes, and they're always blokes, on community correction orders, or sometimes from the early release prison here in Melbourne called the Judy Lazarus Centre. And what we do is refurbish, repair as much as possibly can, a series of old donated bikes, rebirth them. If somebody has got a a healthcare card, I will give them a bike or we give them a bike. And if you're a backpacker or new to Melbourne or need a bike, uh, we'll never charge more than $50 for a bike. So we've been going two days a week over all that time. Um, I think one year... Our best year, I think to date we gave over, uh, distributed about 1,100 bikes. Oh, my goodness. In one year. I think last week we, um, 14 walked out the door. So, look, it's, um, we've had a lot of support from the Yarra City Council. Um, so one of their three-year community grants. I think we're on our fourth grant from there. And we get a few um, private sort of uh, groups at, uh, grant us money um, and so it's like um, something that grew out of something very small um, just one day a week one afternoon a week then whose got, idea was it? Um, <laughs> a good question if we go right back to the genesis of it I was um, 
working in a bike shop, a small sort of uh, much more community-orientated bike shop up in Thornbury. And we were approached by a wonderful bloke called David Kay, actually, who was running the volunteer or running a little sort of bike fix program at uh, St Mary's House of Welcome. Yeah, yeah. And um, David got hold of us and said, oh, would we run a 10-week or once-a-week, one-day-a-week um, sort of uh, uh, skill-sharing thing? Yeah, yeah. How to so fix bike, how to, fix how to bike. do this. Mm. So, look, I did that for uh, – we just had a one afternoon a week for 10 weeks and it was uh, it was a really good experience. And funnily enough, somebody who works for one of the um, – Vacro, who's uh, a uh, philanthropic trust here in Melbourne, been going for 150 years, and their focus is on the care and rehabilitation of uh, Victoria's prisoners. Oh, yeah. Um, who worked for them and saw it in action and said, look, we could turn this into something, and this was originally at the start for early release prisoners, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, that this could really give somebody skills, they could get out for the afternoon, come, do the thing, go back. And, look, then somebody else at uh, Vacro kicked it into another gear and um, it sort of just bloomed from there. Lego, isn't it? It is a bit, but now, look, we have... Uh, there are two people working, um, paid people each day that we're open, Tuesday and Thursday, and, look, we've got about five or six volunteers as well. And, look, I'm just taking Thursday as a snapshot... We had uh, 10 people on community correction orders, all on a stand fixing a bike, um, had one early release, and we had four volunteers. And I think just on Thursday, we would have had seven or eight local community come down, two mothers with all their kids trying out new kids' bikes for Christmas, riding around. We're in an underground car park underneath the... Um, if you know the neighbourhood house underneath the flats corner of Johnson and um, Hoddle Street. Oh, right. Under the two big high-rises there, the one, the big neighbourhood house for those groups is on the bottom floor there, and there's an old underground car park, and we're de- we've been down in that underground car park for... That's not one of the car parks that's threatened by the redevelopment. That is exactly ours, so we had orders to get out about uh, six months ago. But it seems to have slowed down a bit. I don't think they've got anybody to sign the contract to do the build. Oh, good. <laughs> we're, we're under... Well, there's com- not enough room for it, oh, if you ask me. Um, and we, they were going to take ours over because they wanted to use it as a car park. Yeah, yeah. But um, the whole place leaks. If you'd have seen there the other day, there's rivers running through the thing. Yeah. None of the electrical system works in the rain. We're just hoping and praying that things slow down a little bit, I think. Oh, well, I'm glad you've come to talk to us about it because it's obviously something that can't, can't go away. I mean, what you're doing is great. Yeah, thank you. It's, look, it's been – we've had um, – we had the um, VACRO Christmas get-together yesterday and we've had – in those 11 years, we've had one turnover of staff. <laughs> well, they like it. I was, just, I was actually going to say that uh, with that uh, group of people that were there on the Thursday, you must be also developing uh, not just skills on the bikes, but uh, human interaction skills. 
Oh, look, I could speak for the next hour on some of those lovely moments, uh, serious lovely moments. I still got a, there's a lovely gentleman from upstairs. I think he's 95 or 96. Still got an obsession with bicycles. Probably to the stage where it's more about fiddling around with things. Mm. So he comes down, sees a lovely part, takes it home. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then a month later, his daughter brings them all back. back. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. So, so you, you want people to know about what you're doing, but also you want them to know that uh, it's the service for them, perhaps. It is too. And look, we operate as a sort of, we've had a lot of people come down and just spend a day fixing their own bike under a bit of supervision. That's it's, really handy. Yeah. and Especially with, with bikes becoming really complicated. Oh, now we're going to go down. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and the more complicated they become, they seem to be the more disposable, which is unfortunate. Well, yeah, because they're too difficult. I mean, I can remember when uh, bikes were, you know, really heavy and... Uh, you know, were indestructible almost. Yes. But that's not the case. That is not the case anymore. The other good example is, I think in I mean, the... It's fantastic in elements. The, to in the mid-60s, we've gone from five gears to now 13. Yeah. I mean, we just can never have enough, can a- we? A- and yeah. the brake systems aren't pads anymore. No, no, they've all changed. You could not... And look, it's a... Um, it's an industry much like the fashion industry, I've got to say, driven by complete change all the time. Yes. Renewal, change. You soften the... It's like an iPhone. Sharp corners one year, soft corners the next year, different colour scheme, all designed to have high turnover. Mm. And you're right, no no longevity. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that, it, anyway. That, that's another... That's a conversation that bike people can we're doing. We're doing our best to actually make sure that some of those things get saved and actually used. And look, there are um, old bicycles. Are, a bicycle gets you from one place to another... You don't have to buy a horse. You don't have to buy a car. You don't even have to buy an electric bike. You just need a bicycle. And they go simply from one spot to the other. And you have to try very hard sometimes not to have fun on a bike. (laughs) That's true. If you'd have seen these kids whizzing around the underground car park on Thursday, racing each other, it just says it all. You don't even have to say anything else. I had a group of... Well, we uh, have to finish that. Oh, no. no. We've only got three minutes <laughs> I'll leave to go. It there. Yeah. yeah, thanks very much for coming in. Great oh, to Annie, chat with you. Annie, thanks for re- inviting me. It was wonderful as always. Love 3CR. You yeah. know that. <laughs> that was fantastic. Thanks, Phil. Um, uh, that's the end of the show because we really have only got minutes to go. Uh, uh, we looked at uh, the election results in the northern suburbs, swing to the Liberals, believe it or not. Uh, lots of issues about climate and public transport. Uh, we found out about a win um, up and they are saving endangered trees up in Warburton, the Warburton Environment so uh, Community Group. Great victory. Uh, this is the week that was. And Catherine Kelly came and told us about what's going on with Julian Assange, Richard Boyle and David McBride. She's from the Alliance Against Political Persecution. And... Uh, And of course, Val and Second Chance Cycles. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents and we'll go out with Bachelorette Do the Circuit.
panellists for the 2022 edition of The Change, Definitions of Freedom, Interactive Theatre, 7 to 9pm. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.